You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee, and I am your host of this podcast. Uh, this week, I am talking to Scott McDonald, and uh, Mr. McDonald is a researcher. Uh, he works uh, with the Canadian, um, uh, Canadian Institute of Substance Use Research and the School of Information, uh, Health Information Science at the University of Victoria. He has written a book, a very interesting book that is recommended reading for anybody working in the area of of cannabis and in particular cannabis impaired driving called Cannabis Crashes, Myths and Truths. And this book breaks down all of the various topics um, and studies. It does a complete review of the literature related to cannabis impaired driving and comes to conclusions about what are myths and what are truths when it comes to impairment by cannabis and driving. Uh, And so I thought I would welcome Scott onto the podcast to talk about his research and the work that he's done in this area, and in particular, uh, share some of the myths and truths that he uncovered during the course of his research. Scott, thank you so much for joining us on the Driving Law Podcast. Well, thank you for for inviting me. So you have written this new book, uh, Cannabis Crashes, Myths and Truths, and you did a lot of work <laughs> to get uh, yeah. this book book put together. You well, basically read everything out there. It, it's um, almost a lifetime worth of uh, work. I'm, I'm just in the process of retirement, so I wanted to get down uh, uh, stuff that I've learned over my life, uh, dedicating uh, my career to research in uh uh, al- alcohol, drugs, and traffic safety, and uh, workplace safety. How long have you been looking into specifically the issue of cannabis impairment and driving? Well, I w- uh, c- cannabis impairment and driving, I would say 30 years. Wow. So you're probably at the forefront of, of the research in this area globally. Well, I there's there's so much coming out, and there was uh, like there's a, a almost like a publication a day coming out um, uh, towards in this last year and towards uh, legalization. Um, so it's hard to keep up with it all. But um, I, what I tried to do in my book is is uh, focus on the studies that I think are are more important to the field. Okay. And so how did you make the determination about which studies to include and which ones not to consider or include? Uh, the ones that I think are, are more important are the ones that um, uh, legislators have, have used. And uh, so I focus on, on those. So legislators have used for uh, developing ca- cannabis-impaired driving laws. And uh, I've also uh, focused on uh, the ones that are uh, more methodologically rigorous. So the one, basically, it's the ones that are uh, have are are more uh, popular and uh, more cited, and, and the ones that are more rigorous are the ones that I I tended to to uh, zero in on. 
Okay. Now, around the middle of your book, um, you get into really, I think, sort of the heart of the issue from the perspective of, of certainly defense counsel and people dealing with the area of cannabis impaired driving, which is the use of cannabis and its effect on your you know, ability to operate a motor vehicle. And um, one of the things that I found really interesting was you broke down different studies based on the manner in which the samples were collected. So looking at uh, the presence of THC metabolites in urine, the oral fluid studies, and the blood. Um, what was your thinking behind making that decision to, to sort of differentiate them that way? Well, the, the main reason is that, uh, well, all of them have been used in the field to uh, uh, d detect uh, can cannabis users while, while driving, but uh, uh, some biological specimens, like urine, has much a, a longer detection period than oral fluid, and oral fluids has a longer detection period than uh, cannabis, or that can than uh, blood tests. So blood tests really are the best um, uh, specimen, or, or, or the best possibility for assessing impairment. Okay, so with that in mind, then I have to I have to ask. I mean, what methods Canada has set up to sort of deal with the drug impaired driving after the legalization of cannabis is the use of drug recognition evaluations plus a sample that can be either urine or blood, and so long as the results of the drug recognition evaluation correspond to what was detected in the urine or the blood, um, or ultimately, potentially, even a saliva sample, although that's not there yet as far as their ability to do that, um, uh, then the person is presumed to be impaired by that drug. Do you see a problem from your research about structuring the law to well, create a presumption of impairment? Well, I mean, the, the, the drug recognition expert law, the, or the DRE law, is uh, based on a, a kind of a two-step process. So, so the first step is is um, looking through uh, signs of um, impairment um, uh, for for different different uh, drugs or, or signs of, of being being under the influence mm -hmm. uh, for the different drugs. And if if um, the drug recognition officer feels that uh, uh, there is probable reason that the person has, has been using drugs. And then they, they ask for um, uh, some kind of uh, drug test. It could be, as you point out, it could be urine or uh, possibly oral fluids or, or blood uh, to uh, see if it's consistent with with the uh, determination that the, uh, that the police officer makes. Uh, the, the problem with that, part of the law, and there are new laws that have been introduced as well that we can talk about later, but uh, uh, the problem is that it's kind of a 15, I think it's a 15-step uh, process, and um, there's there's things in, in the uh, process of determining whether somebody's impaired that don't really make a lot of sense to me, like like somebody's blood, blood pressure. Well, blood pressure vary a lot, and it's not necessarily, a person's blood pressure isn't necessarily related to whether they have performance 
deficits that you might be, it might be considered impairment. Uh, so that's kind of one of the issues. They're, they're more focusing whether the person has used the drug rather, rather than whether um, they're experiencing deficits. Right. So that, that's, an, that's an issue uh, with the DRE system. Uh, the other problem with it is it's never really been validated against um, in what I would call uh, impairment. So impairment, I, w- I, w- I would uh, define as uh, uh, deficits uh, c- uh, that are approximately equivalent to uh, 0.08% alcohol or 0.05% alcohol, which would be the kind of provincial standard. Um, uh, there just haven't been the studies. There's been the, the studies to see where people are administered cannabis or other drugs, and um, uh, the drug recognition officers are asked to identify which which drugs they're uh, under, and uh, they they do go through the the process, and they they've shown to have some validity, but we don't know if the people were actually uh, experiencing a severe performance deficit at at the time. So it was it was measured against a different a different standard. Right. And but so then from your perspective as as sort of a scientist in this area, you couldn't take comfort from the fact that the officer says at the conclusion of the evaluation, yes, they're impaired by cannabis and the presence of cannabis uh, metabolites show up in the urine. So well, I certainly um mistakes can be made. I mean, it I think it's better than just a one-step process of, of just taking a blood test, which is the, the new laws that were introduced in uh, October 17th, where uh, if a person has uh, two to five nanograms of blood uh, or THC in the blood, uh, it can have a summary event and um, uh, over five nanograms of an indictable event. If it's a two-part uh, uh the chances are improved that um, uh, that you're actually detecting what you want to detect, but um, they're still not great as far as I'm concerned. Right, and so they're, they're better than a one-step process. I'll say that. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, do you do you come to any conclusions? Well, I, I mean, I know you do. But <laughs> what what conclusions do you come to in the book about um, this idea of impairment or performance deficits, as you uh, as you term it, um, and like low levels, like the two to five nanograms of THC? Um, what is there a, a corresponding relationship between those things? Uh, well, there's you know, I you know. Cannabis in the is a very complex uh, substance, and um, uh, you know when people smoke cannabis, generally what happens is their THC levels rise really quickly within the first ten minutes after use to um, levels of often often above a hundred nanograms, and then they drop uh, really really quickly um, to maybe. Uh, 15 nanograms in the first hour, and then they they level off very uh, very gradually after that. So, um, 
you know, it's possible that a person could be impaired I, at that level. I think it's I think it's unlikely if they smoke cannabis. Now, the other issue which I um, look at in the the book is when cannabis is ingested um, or eaten, people uh, uh, get much more high off, off, of, off of it than if they they smoke cannabis. And uh, but interestingly, uh, the THC levels are do not spike up in the same way. They don't get nearly as high as when somebody is has smoked it. Uh, but the the subjects are are high much higher and for a much longer period when cannabis is ingested. Now, in my research, looking into, you know, you know why, why this might happen, um, there's a, I found this other um, metabolite called hydroxy-THC. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's when people ingest uh, THC, they produce a lot of uh, hydroxy-THC, and it, it's reported, although there's not a lot of research on, on the issue, that uh, it's like four times more psychoactive than THC itself, even though it's a metabolite. And it's, it's going through your system um, uh, to a much greater extent when you ingest THC or when you ingest cannabis than, um, uh, when, than when you smoke it. So that may be um, a, a factor, although uh, no, nobody's been able to uh, uh, properly uh, take measures of, of both a THC and um, uh, hydroxy-THC and determine whether or not... Um, a person is actually impaired or not. There just isn't the research out there. Okay, so your recommendation then probably would be for further research in the area of of the impact of hydroxy THC on somebody's ability to drive. Well, that that's one of my recommendations is looking into hydroxy uh, THC. Now there is this other metabolite called carboxy THC, yep. uh, which is found in uh, urine, and it's it's tested for within, in uh, workplace drug testing, but uh, it's it's basically inert. It doesn't have any psychoactive properties, so it, it, I, I wouldn't be looking at that at all. And how long would you or could you expect to see the presence of carboxy THC in urine from the last time that somebody used cannabis? Well, in urine. Um, there were some earlier studies, uh, you know, people have been found to test positive for like 60 days or, or even 90 days after use, but those would be heavier uh, daily users. Um, generally, the, the science suggests that if, if somebody has used maybe uh, an occasional user, they've, they've used once or twice, uh, they might test positive for three or four days after after use so the, the cutoff makes a big difference as well but I'm, I'm I'm talking about cutoffs that are typically used in uh, workplace drug testing right but if I mean in the criminal context if you're looking at charging somebody with cannabis impaired driving on the basis of the presence of the carboxy THC in the urine plus a failed drug recognition evaluation um, would that to you be be scientifically valid, or do you have concerns about that, um, even though it's a two-step process, uh, about those steps being used in combination? 
Um, well, I definitely have have con- concerns about it because the uh, uh, the urine test just tests whether they can assess that's whether you're a user or, or been exposed to cannabis and not not whether you're under the influence. So that part of it has very little little validity there. I don't think there's been any studies. Um, well, the only studies that have shown that there's a relationship between testing positive for um, carboxy THC in the in the urine or or blood have been those that are 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 methodologically flawed. But the majority of studies haven't found any relationship at all between testing positive and crashes. Uh, so it's it's not uh, urine tests. In terms of impairment, I would say are pretty much off off the table. Now, you you can actually test for THC in urine, and uh, but it shows up typically. Um, it doesn't show up quick, quickly in the urine. Um, it, it might be two hours after you're you're using, and it, it spikes rather quickly, and it leaves your system. Uh, rather quickly, but um, it uh, you could test for for THC maybe uh, uh, two two to four hours after use. Okay, so if you had somebody who had ingested um, cannabis in like an edible format, and then you know it takes half an hour to an hour to kick in, and then they drove after it kicked in and were involved in a police investigation as a result, you could end up having a urine sample when there would be no presence of THC any longer, even though the impairment is still there. Is that possible? It, uh, it's possible. Yes. If it's you know if it's, if it's within the two hour period. Okay. Now the most interesting part I have to say for for me looking at uh, what you wrote was your chapter on the long term effects of alcohol and cannabis because you you dealt with something that I haven't read anything anywhere about and didn't even know people were looking into, oh, which was hangover. <laughs> but 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 it, but it comes up again and again and again in these. Uh, Workplace drug testing cases, and I've been a, I've been an expert witness in maybe twenty cases, and it uh, in the majority of the cases this issue comes up. Well, okay, well we, you know, the the argument is well, well we can't test for impairment, but uh, the uh, there's hangover effects from uh, cannabis, and they they can last um, if you take cannabis once, you could be stoned for maybe twenty four hours, so. Um, what I've done is I've looked at the, the studies that uh, investigate this issue, and I found nine nine studies altogether. Um, uh, six of them find no effect after 24 hours, and three of them uh, did did suggest there was a 24 hour effect. However, the three all of the three um, studies that um, found hour effects were methodologically flawed in that uh, there was no random assignment to conditions where the six studies that found no effects were um, methodologically rigorous studies using gold standard methods. Um, so, um, 
but for some reason there's this this one study in particular by Larrier uh, in the I think it's 191991 um, that is cited over and over and over and over again as proof that uh, there's this 24-hour effect. And this this study is severely methodologically flawed. There was no random like, random assignment. Um, they had certain measures. They dropped it. They, they found some measures were unreliable um, uh, and uh, dropped them in the middle of the study. Yet other method measures where they used the exactly the same method, uh, they they kept. And those measures helped to show um, a, a 24-hour deficit. So um, I'm I'm pretty much firmly on the side of you know there's not credible evidence that there's a um, a hangover effect from. Uh, cannabis, uh, similar to uh, alcohol from occasional users. The um, Now, when you say the, the hangover effect from alcohol, and I don't want to stray too far from, from cannabis because that's really the focus of, of the book, but um, when you say alcohol, what have the studies shown as far as like a hangover effect and impairment um, or, or deviation well, I mean, from the norm? It's kind of a it's a it, it's a tough area to uh, investigate, right? Because there's there's no you know um, the next day, um, and, you know I think it's accepted that there is a hangover effect for, <laughs> for alcohol. Um, the next day, people you know they can they can have headaches, they can feel woozy, um, and uh, their reaction times might not be as as. Uh, fast, but they're not experiencing the acute effects of alcohol. They're experiencing a kind of a, a hangover effect. But there's no way of, of telling whether or not um, uh, you know the person kind of ha- had a had a binge the night night before. So it's a very it's a very difficult area to study. I I would say that um, the majority of research, although it's not conclusive. Um, is suggestive that you know that a person can have hangover effects from alcohol, and um, their ability to drive a car is worse. You know how much worse we don't know um, when they're experiencing a hangover than when they're not experiencing a hangover. So because of the distinction then between like the research that would support hangover from alcohol and probably just sort of ordinary human experience, I mean, I think about <laughs> my own life <laughs> sometimes during law school when I woke up the next day, I was like, oh my God, how am I going to study? <laughs> um, the um, And then the difference with cannabis where there isn't solid research to support a, a hangover effect. Should, do you think our law should reflect that distinction? Because right now, the way it is in British Columbia, if you get pulled over and the police think that you're under the influence of alcohol or cannabis, as the case may be, they can give you a 24-hour prohibition from driving. Do you think that, that 24 hours is too long when it comes to cannabis-impaired driving? Um, I mean, you know, obviously, if, 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 you're, uh, if you've used, if you cannabis like within an hour you smoke within an hour it's not advisable to um uh to, to drive and in the studies overall show that the acute effects of cannabis can um 
increase your your crash risk overall. The evidence does show that over overall, but um, uh, so we. Your question. Basically, can you put a number? Like, would you be able to identify a, a period of time where it would be appropriate to remove a driver from the road who is believed to be under the influence oh. of cannabis before it would be safe to let them start driving again? Well, the appropriate number, you know, maybe again, if, if a person um, ingests cannabis, so if you're going to, you know, the, my advice to people that they're going to ingest is, is, you know, don't don't drive that night. Right. <laughs> you know, but it, I mean, it could, it, 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 the effects could last like 10 hours. Um, but if you're, if you're smoking it, um, people, the effects come rather quickly and then they dissipate rather quickly. So may, it could be, you know, it depends on how much you've had, but um, it, you could be safe to drive you know, after an hour, I would, I would think, um, if you, if you just had a couple of toes. Um, so, you know, obviously, it, you know, some people are affected more than, than others. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so it, it's hard, it's hard to put an actual, um, uh, you know, time limit on it. But I can, you know, I think 20, 24 hours is, is a, um, it, you know, it's an it's an ultra conservative uh, uh, period of time. I would say. <laughs> okay, uh, that's that's fair. Do you now? You said um, that uh, you know, if you've just had a couple tokes and everybody's different, it, how how big of a role does tolerance to cannabis play in your crash risk? I've uh, a huge role, and 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 uh, you know, tolerance plays. A role in alcohol as well, and all the other other drugs. But you know, there have been studies of of uh, uh, have like daily users, and uh, they they've been administered cannabis, and um, uh, uh, you know, the the researchers haven't found any deficits at all. Um, so, um, but for you know, alcohol, you know, tolerance does develop but I, I think it um, I think you have to drink a, a lot more um, a, a lot of alcohol to, uh, to develop uh, tolerance or certainly uh, someone that's um, alcohol dependent or experienced an alcohol disorder um, will um, uh, tolerate alcohol uh, better than a novice driver for sure mm -hmm. um, but I think for um, for cannabis, it's even more extreme. In the sense that you can develop a tolerance much more quickly. Yeah, yeah, you can develop a tolerance, but the effects are are more subtle than alcohol in the in the first place, and um, uh, your ability to compensate is much greater. And the other aspect, um, comparing alcohol and um, uh, cannabis is uh, cannabis is kind of uh, what I would call a, like a risk aversive drug. So when people are stoned, they generally don't like to do dangerous things, and if they do do things that might be a bit dangerous, then they they uh, compensate for for 
that. And the studies have, have shown overall that um, if people do drive under the influence of, of cannabis, they, t- they tend to um, uh, take on what I call kind of defensive driving um, approaches so that they, they would drive a lot further behind the car in front of them there if they're on the highway to give them more time if they need to, to break. Whereas um, uh, other substances like uh, alcohol and, and cocaine in particular um, are um, uh, people, you know, cocaine in particular uh, people <laughs> would take more, more risk and people uh, that, that use cocaine tend to mix cocaine with, with um, alcohol, which um, uh, makes their, uh, you know, psychomotor coordination that much worse, but they say they feel that they're better. Um, so, um, that's, that's a particularly bad combination. It was interesting that you mentioned the combination of alcohol and cocaine, because one of the things that the criminal code now prohibits is a combination of a particular blood alcohol level and, um, and THC. Are there studies that show an increased risk um, over the sort of general risk for um, for that exists for cannabis and driving when it's used in combination with alcohol? Um, well, there certainly are researchers that that come out and and say that the combination is um, uh, uh, dangerous and and more dangerous than uh, one substance alone. Alone, and I would I would think it is more dangerous, but I I must say I haven't um, come across research studies in particular that have uh, persuaded me that that is that is true. But I you know I I, I haven't looked at all of those studies um, in enough detail to, to provide a you know an, an opinion that. <laughs> you know, that I have a lot of confidence in. Right, okay. Now, um, part of your book also focuses on uh, crash risk studies and the method of sample collection. So you break it down by um, the samples that were were blood or urine or oral fluid. How does the type of sample that was collected play a role in the ability to accurately predict a crash risk? Well, I mean, if, if somebody's under the influence, uh, you, 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 you want to be able to detect that, right? And, um, uh, blood, uh, cannabis leaves the, the blood faster than it leaves, uh, or it can be, t- it has a shorter detection window in blood than it has in oral fluid. And the longest, uh, uh, detection period is, is, um, uh, urine. Well, actually, longer than that is even even hair. But um, no, nobody has has ever talked about uh, testing for hair in, in traffic safety situations that I've ever heard of. <laughs> Men would come out on top, and women would fail <laughs> statistically. <Yeah. laughs> um, so, so what? Do you find, like, ultimately what your conclusions in the book is that there there are myths related to THC level and crash risk and the comparison, um, I think you, you label it between 3.5 and 5 nanograms being said to be equivalent to 0.05. Why do you think that myth has developed? Um, well, you know, people have a, a, a lot of beliefs 
about um, about uh, drugs and cannabis, and and our our people's beliefs are are often um, uh, evolve from how culturally acceptable um, uh, different substances are. So, um, you know, cannabis has been illegal, and the and uh, the other drugs are illegal. So. Um, uh, I think that researchers in in general, and researchers are just people too. You know, yeah. they have um, these perceptions, and they they can um, I, not necessarily uh, consciously, but unconsciously, um, uh, biases can slip into their study that they 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 don't uh, rec- recognize because of these beliefs. Right. So what you're saying is essentially because of the social stigma associated with cannabis use over the last, you know, several decades, um, it's led to potentially an unconscious bias in how results are reported in studies about cannabis and impairment. Well, absolutely. And I mean, there's there's um, uh, the way uh, knowledge is disseminated is is kind of astonishing in, in some of these uh, in some areas well the 24-hour um, deficits or hangover deficits the Larrier study for instance Health Canada uh, on their website they say well there you could um, uh, uh, have 24-hour performance deficits from from smoking cannabis and they they quote they reference the one study which is which I consider personally like one of the worst studies out there um, uh, to to uh, to demonstrate this, and they don't mention any of the other studies. That's that's a bias. Now, if I, I, this might be a tough question for you, but if you could rewrite the Canadian impaired cannabis impaired driving laws, if if they came to you and said, "All right." Dr. McDonald, we want you to write them. What, how would you make them look? Um, well, you know, I I think overall there's there's um, uh, you know driving itself is very very dangerous. I will say that you know, like there's, there's a, a million people die every year worldwide from drive driving a car, and among those accidents, uh, people die for a, a wide range of reasons. Uh, sometimes there's defects in the car, there's problems in the road. Um, sometimes it, it could be the driver. That, uh, we have studies. We know uh, there's so many uh, things that people can can do that can increase their um, likelihood of crashes. If, for instance, if you're experiencing a stressful life event, your 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 spouse uh, dies, or even you're you're about to go on a holiday or get married, your likelihood of, of uh, being in a crash is significantly increased. We know that. If you have sleep problems, your your likelihood of a, a crash is increased. Or uh, if you have conflicts at at home or with 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 your workers, your your likelihood of an accident is increased. So there's a, a wide range of um, of, of of risk out there uh, from, from driving, and um, uh, I I would say that the the ultimate goal in traffic 
Haiti would be what I would call kind of a a harm reduction approach. Now, harm reduction is um, a term used in um, uh, with uh, with drugs, right? So it, it basically it means that um, uh, with with uh, uh, drugs, uh, we're there's a lot of people feel that um, uh, uh, p- people just shouldn't u- use drugs, but there's also the harm reduction approach, which is, well, accepting that people do use drugs, but trying to reduce the harms that they, they can cause cause to others. The same approaches have been used in traffic safety, and these approaches have been incredibly successful. Like, driving is dangerous. Inherently, it's very dangerous. But what have we done to address the the, the dangers? Well, we we we've, we've created safe safer cars. Uh, they, we have anti lock uh, brakes. We have seat belts. We have um, daytime running lights. We have safer roads. We have uh, rumble strips on the side of the road. We have uh, a better light 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 lighting of, of roads and better uh, switching devices. All these things have helped to um, reduce the like likelihood of crashes. And now on the horizon, we have what kind of driverless cars. Well, you know, if, if you can punch in the coordinates of where you want to go, um, maybe it doesn't matter if you're even impaired. So I, I think, I think um, we're in a kind of an era of uh, you know that uh, that that driving is is very um, uh, dangerous, and we have to we have to take it away from from uh, 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 humans and have them uh, have the least amount of involvement with with the, with the car. Um, so that's you know that's what I would would say. Like you know. Our society has a love affair with cars. Oh yeah, <laughs> and um, um, we we basically accept um, that, um, in a way, that um, a million people die per year, and there's all this carnage. Uh, what we don't accept is 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 if people are using certain substances, like they're they're drinking. But drinking is um, well integrated into our 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 society, right? And eighty eighty percent of people um, uh, uh, drink drink alcohol. But you know the the laws we have against drinking drivers um, they've been somewhat success, successful. I mean, they have have helped to reduce. Um, uh, drinking, driving, but education has also helped in changing um, uh, kind of social norms. So I, I think they, certainly the uh, public education approach is a very, very good one. I'm not, um, I'm not a, a highly in favor of kind of the deterrent approach where we punish people for for doing something wrong and try trying to change their behavior that way. I mean, the deterrence and punishment work in certain situations, but not not others. Like when people drink or are under the influence, they they do stupid things, mm-hmm. and um, um, 
they can't they can't properly evaluate. Oh well, I I could get caught by the police and stop. Well, the the chances of of being caught for drinking and driving are something like like one in in twenty thousand. You know, they're they're very very small. Um, and that's with all these these uh, road checks out there. Right. So I, I I don't think that it's it's a very uh, wise use of um, of uh, limited public resources to, to focus on uh, de- deterrence and um, trying to um, uh, certainly we can't there is no um, a biological test or any way we can tell right right now if a person is under the influence. I, I think that more research should be should go into development of kind of performance measures that um, definitely correlate with um, with the ability to drive drive a car if you know if, if that's possible. But um, you know, there's none out there that I can actually think of. So I would say more research. Okay, and so I guess it was sort research. of. Leading to my next question, do you think or do you anticipate as the stigma around cannabis use lessens with legalization, do you anticipate more research coming out um, that suggests less uh, likelihood of a crash risk or less likelihood of, you know, carnage for people at certain, you know, blood THC concentrations or with, with detectable levels of THC in their urine or their oral fluid? Um, do you expect to see sort of a shift in in the research over time? Well, I, I think I think over time the researcher will become um, more objective than it has in the past. But I, you know, I I think pretty much all researchers know that you know alcohol is the one the, the single most dangerous drug out there for for driving and much more dangerous than than um, uh, uh, cannabis. But you know that's with what people generally generally use mm-hmm. the amounts that they use yeah okay um well thank you so much this was all fascinating how can people okay. get a copy of your book well it, i would say if you plug in um cannabis crashes and lulu which is the publisher it will come in on uh, come up on any search engine and that's l-u-l-u l-u-l-u is a publisher, and it, it's Cannabis Crashes. Okay, and um, the book, uh, so everybody out there who's listening should definitely order this book because it is fascinating. If you have yeah. an interest in cannabis, it's it's just very well researched and, and well summarized and a lot of information to take in. Um, thank you again for joining thank, us on thank the podcast. Thank you, Tyler. Okay. Okay, bye now. Bye. Thank you again to Dr. Scott McDonald for sharing his insight about cannabis-impaired driving, and in particular, uh, the very interesting insights he has about hangover, cannabis hangover, 24-hour abstinence before driving, as well as how research has been impacted by social stigma about cannabis use. Those are important considerations that we all should bear in mind when we think about how the law has been crafted to deal with drug-impaired driving. And my hope is that as the research sort of stabilizes and moves away from these inherent biases that come from uh, the social stigma against cannabis use after legalization, we will eventually see more sensible laws 
laws in relation to cannabis-impaired driving so that, as I've said before, medical users aren't unfairly targeted um, because, as you've just heard, uh, tolerance plays a huge role. And uh, so that uh, people aren't punished on the basis of faulty or flawed science about cannabis-impaired driving. If you can't find uh, Dr. McDonald's book online, reach out to me by uh, either giving me a call at 604-685-8889 or sending me an email or finding us online at vancouvercriminallaw.com and I will provide you with the information to order a copy for yourself. And if you have any other questions or any driving law-related matter, reach out to me and I'm always happy to talk to you. Tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law.